first heard about Lazarus, he came to Bethany. Found Lazarus four days in the grave. He told Mary and Martha he's only asleep. Then Lazarus heard him say, Oh, Lazarus, oh, Lazarus, oh, Lazarus, it's time to wake up. about Calvary, how Jesus can wash your sins away. Satan tries to hold on and rock him back to sleep, but he hears the Holy Spirit softly say, Oh, sinner, oh, sinner, oh, sinner, it's time to wake up. Oh, sinner, Oh, sinner, oh, sinner, it's time to wake up. One day, Gabriel will blow the trumpet loud, announcing the resurrection day. The voice of Jesus will penetrate the ground And all sleeping saints will hear him say Oh, say, oh, say, oh, say It's time to wake up Oh, say, it's time to wake up Today's sermon is pre-recorded. The message today is entitled, Moral Insanity. Moral Insanity. Almighty God, would you make us a people sane, able to look at reality, able to understand what life is all about. Lord, grant to us your Holy Spirit and understanding. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Fatalism is the acceptance of all things and events as inevitable. Fatalism is submission to my circumstances. I'm giving you the dictionary definitions of fatalism. Submission to my circumstances. Powerless to shape the future. An attitude of resignation. An attitude that says we're not free to choose our own actions. Finally resulting in the insane position of saying... Nothing has meaning. You remember studying the great philosopher, French philosopher, Camus, who said, life has no meaning. That if you're driving down the road and you hit someone with your car and it kills them, it has no meaning. He was like Nietzsche. Life is meaningless. Nihilism, it's called in philosophic terms. Fatalism leads to that kind of insane position. Nothing is worth fighting for. Nothing that I do will make a difference. A rejection of personal commitment. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't walk in fatalism. Fatalism has infected the National Prayer Chapel. It's infected the church in America. It's infected us in such a manner 
that most do not feel a need to cry out to God in prayer. Instead, we simply suffer in our circumstances and say, there's nothing I can do about it. Whatever is going to be is going to be. This week on the radio, I'm going to be dealing all week with fatalism. And I'm going to be telling the stories of men and women who single-handedly changed the whole course and direction of not just their lives, but of their culture. To be bound in fatalism says, I can't do anything of value or of worth to rescue myself. I just have to accept what is. I refuse to accept what is. America is crashing There has been no recovery in our economy. As much as the mainstream news wants to convince you that everything is moving forward and recovering, it is not. It is continuing a downward trend. And you will see in the coming weeks the stock market is going to be slowly bleeding down. In fact, the Federal Reserve is intentionally not raising interest rates because if they had raised the interest rates, the stock market would have crashed. They don't want a crash. They want a bleed down. They want a lowering of the stock market because it's so vastly overpriced. The same is true in housing. The same is true in many areas, commodities. They are overpriced. There is a huge bubble. And these things are going to slowly bleed off. Now the Fed is hoping they can create a soft landing. I'm here to tell you they will not have a soft landing. It will be a very hard landing. Because America is no longer producing anything. We have become a service economy. Almost all of the new jobs are jobs in restaurants part-time, or jobs in another service sector of our economy. Very little is of production. It'd be interesting to ask how many of you today are in a job where you actually create something or produce something. Most of you are in a job that services something. It's called a service economy. It doesn't build anything, so it doesn't build wealth. Government cannot create wealth. The government cannot create jobs. It's the private sector that creates jobs. But we have utterly destroyed our private sector. So now the highest number of Americans in history are unemployed. And the Fed has the foolishness to say the reason we have so many unemployed people is that they want to be unemployed. Well, that's a lie. The whole American spirit is to work. I was raised, as I'm sure many of you were, to work. And if I can't work, there's an essential element of my life that is missing I need to be able to take care of my family. Without that, there's depression, discouragement, and fatalism that says I can't change my circumstances. That nothing is worth fighting for. Nothing that I do will make a difference. This is insanity. It's moral insanity. And we live in a nation that has gone morally insane. But the church is not escaping the moral insanity. The church is not escaping. Can you turn that down, Sam? Check, one, two. Is that better? Thank you. The church is not escaping the moral insanity of our day. It's evidenced in the church by coming into the prayer circle 
and many of you choose not to pray. Why? Because you don't think that your prayer is going to make any difference in that prayer circle. You've come to the conclusion that prayer doesn't change anything. Because most of you have not ever seen prayer transform your circumstances. Fatalism. I just have to put up with what is. I refuse to accept that lie. I will not walk that way. Insanity comes in two ways. There is insanity of the head, and there is insanity of the heart. In the first, there is a disordering of the mind. The man who says, you know what I'm doing in my garage? I'm hammering together a ladder because I want to climb to the moon. We would say that's a certifiably crazy man. He is insane. Because all of us know you can't hammer a ladder together and climb to the moon. Have you tried it? No, I haven't. There is a second kind of insanity. It is a moral insanity. And it is, it is madness of the will. The person retains his intellectual power, but he sets his heart on doing evil. I'd like to share with you some manifestations of moral insanity. Number one, fiction is treated like reality. So we say, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. Because we're not in a crisis, but we're walking in sin. That's morally insane. As one brother said to me this week, is it okay if I walk in sin? Well, yeah, we're, nobody can be perfect. Well, what kind of sin would you not mind if I commit against you? You know, may I take your wife? Well, no. Well, can I take your wallet? Can I steal your money? Well, no. Can I spread lies about you? Well, no. That's not right. So what kind of sin can I commit against you? And you would say, yes, that's fine. Well, I don't want you to commit any sin against me. It's not, it's not sane for you to commit sin against me or any other person. None of us want sin committed against us. To sin is moral insane. It's insanity. Number two, in moral insanity, self is always supreme. The concern is, I want what I want. I want my money, I want my time, I want my dreams, I want, I want, I want, I want. That's morally insane. A, a morally sane person says, how may I serve you? A morally sane person says, how can I contribute to the betterment of my family and of my church? A morally insane person is a consumer. A morally insane person is a consumer. Do you remember the old definition of consumption? It was a disease. It was a fatal disease of the lungs. If a person had consumption, they were dying. Today we've taken consumption and said, let's make this into a hobby. So the person who says, I'm depressed, I know what I'll do. I'll go shopping. 
and I'm going to buy these things that I don't need. I've gone into people's homes and I've seen in their homes brand new clothing with a tag still on. I wonder if I went into your closet what I'd find there. Were you temporarily given to insanity and you bought things that you've never worn and you had no need of, but you bought them because you were bored and you just wanted to go shopping? Morally insane. Consumption is insanity. Number three. A morally insane person gives preference to time over eternity. So what's important? What I want to do right now. What's important is that I want to do this now. And that's more important than where it will take me in eternity. A morally sane person recognizes that they are now living in heaven. Did you understand what I just said to you? A morally sane person recognizes that they are now living in heaven. And that the transition to the celestial city, you will not be a different person than you are today. Your last day on earth and your first day in heaven, you will be the same person. And if that person you are today is ineligible for heaven because of sin, you need to repent and get right with Jesus. Because your last day on earth and your first day in heaven, you will have what you have now, which is your character. And if your character is not pure before God, you've been putting time ahead of eternity. You need to be prepared right now in your character to take the short step across the boundary into the heavenly realm. You're not going to act any differently your first day in heaven than you act right now. And if the way you act right now is not suitable for heaven, you will never reach heaven. So if anger and bitterness rises up in your heart, if God were to allow you into heaven, angerness and bitterness would rise up in your heart. He's not going to let an angry, bitter person into the kingdom of heaven. You're just not going to go. Either we win the victory now. Now is the time of probation. But I want to tell you, the good news is that when you're clean in Jesus... You dwell in heavenly realms. You have joy in your spirit. You know you are under the direct control of the Holy Spirit. You no longer are considering the little offenses of this day because you're forward looking. You don't put time over eternity. You know that your eternal life is now in motion. You may go to bed and sleep a short time. You may rest a short time before you see the face of Jesus, but I go to bed and rest every night. Death is not to be feared. Death is simply the transition step over to the other side. And when we get to the other side, we're the same as we were here. Oh, we'll have a new body, but our character is the same. A morally insane person. thinks that this world is real and that eternity and spiritual life is somehow ethereal. Look, I woke up this morning. I rolled out of bed. I prayed. I made my bed. If you were to go to my house right now and you'd walk into my bedroom, you would see my bed, my bed is made. Every morning I get up and make my bed. That's just how I live. You get up every morning and you do certain things. And then one day, you don't wake up here. 
you wake up on the other side. We go this day and then tomorrow. I have another day and the next day I have another day. And the next day I have another day. But this day's in heaven. That's why eternity is ahead of time. Because when I reach this day, I have a million more days ahead of me. Well, today I have a million days ahead of me. The only difference is I haven't crossed over yet. When I went to sleep last night and I woke up this morning, I was praying, Lord, could I wake up on the other side? And he said, no. So I said, well, I I better go to church then. I would rather have gone to the temple of the Lord where Jesus was holding the service and where Jesus was preaching. But instead I came to meet with you all. Because I do love you. Am I making sense to you? We fear things out of moral insanity because we have placed time ahead of eternity. A morally insane person attempts the impossible. That is, a morally insane person tries to be happy in the midst of his sin. It is impossible to be happy and be in sin. As soon as the sin begins to grow in our hearts, a distance begins to grow between our hearts and Jesus. And the more the sin grows in our hearts, the more separate we are from the source of all joy and all life. If your soul is not at peace today, if your soul is troubled today, you need to spend some time with Jesus today. Because evidently you haven't been reading His Word. And you haven't been praying. Prayer is the breath of the soul. Show me a person who does not pray and I'll show you a dead man or woman walking. It is prayer that brings life to the soul of a man or a woman. If you are not in prayer, in Christ Jesus, you are a dead person. Now the last sign of moral insanity that I'll deal with today is moral insanity brings a loss of comfort and a loss of confidence with those you are closest to. Moral insanity brings bitterness and fighting and rage. It brings judgments and accusations. As soon as you find yourself beginning to be distanced from those who are close to you, it's either because you're walking in moral insanity or they are walking in moral insanity. And you need to be very clear which of you is insane and which of you is sane, insane. If you're both insane, you have some repentance to do. If they're insane, you have some prayer work to do. Because only through prayer can a family member be brought back into intimacy with Jesus Christ. Now I want to share with you the 22nd chapter of Isaiah. We're going to come back to this several times in the coming weeks. So today I'm going to give you just a brief overview We have here an oracle concerning the valley of vision against Jerusalem or against God's people. And you will see very clearly there is man's way, there is reality, and there is God's way. So you will see man's way is always the insane, morally insane way. 
Then there's reality, separate from any perception of the insane man. And then there is God's way of dealing. I want you to see these three realities in the 22nd chapter. We're not going to go into the historical references, but I want you to see the way the passages divide themselves between God's way, man's way, and reality. Chapter 22, verse 1, an oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What troubles you now that you've all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? That's man's way. And you're going to see this demonstrated in a dramatic fashion in the coming weeks weeks and months in America. The moral insanity says, I have to know what's happening. And so I'll spend hours on the internet searching and finding what's going on. Listening to the news. Watching the television. I have to know what's going on. What troubles you now that you've all gone up on your roofs? In that day, they didn't have television. They didn't have internet. They all went up on their rooftops. And they called the neighbors. What's happening? What's happening? And they would shout the news back and forth. And everybody is up on their rooftop getting the last information about the attacks that are happening. Then, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry. Because now, as we find out what's happening, the human ways, okay, let's have a party. Let's get together socially. Hey guys, come on over, let's have dinner. It's not going to touch us. So the economy is going down. So there's a crash in the stock market. Not going to touch us. So let's get together and have dinner. God's way. Verse 4. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision, a day of battering down walls, crying out to the mountains. That is, crying out to the mountains to fall on me. I can't bear to face what's happening. So on one hand, you have fatalism that says, look, I can't do anything about the stock market. I can't do anything about this. I can't do anything about that. I want to know all the news. But then let's just get together and have a good time. God's way. He says, look, turn away from me. Don't talk to me. Let me weep bitterly. Can I tell you? It's time to weep bitterly over America. America, as we're talking right now, is crashing. The filth is a geyser. The filth that's coming into America. I could not have imagined it when I was a child. We do not dare, as a national prayer chapel, resort to fatalism and say, we can't do anything about this. We just have to accept what is. I will not accept the wickedness of this nation rising before me. I will not accept it. I will cry out against it in the prayer closet. I will speak against it on the radio. I'm not going to just say, whatever will be, will be. I'm asking Jesus to break forth in revival power in this nation. I'm asking him to stop the downward flow of America. I'm asking that he would deal with the wickedness of our president and of our Congress. And I am crying out against them in the prayer closet. 
I'm saying, Almighty God, deal with this nation's leaders. I'm terrified by what I'm seeing take place in our nation. I will not accept that we as a people cannot pray. I will not accept that we have to stand in our prayer circle while some of you drift in late. I will not accept it. I will not accept that we as a prayer chapel are consumers. So caught up in our own lives that we will not pray. God did not call us to be a house of consumption. He called us to be a house of prayer. I will not accept that the National Prayer Chapel is comfortable for a sinner to dwell in. Any person walking in any known sin needs to feel most uncomfortable in this house until they either change the course of their life and repent or flee. It's my intention to make it that uncomfortable by speaking honestly with love about the reality of our spiritual condition before God. Because God has called us to pray, and we can't pray if we're walking in known sin. We can't pray if our heart is filled with bitterness and anger and judgments. We can't pray if we're controlled by fatalism and we've given up. We can't pray. God called us to pray. Reality in Jerusalem was in verse 7 and 8. Your choicest valleys are full of the chariots, and it doesn't say it, but it means it, the chariots of Babylon. Your horsemen are posted at the city gates. Their horsemen are posted at the city gates. In other words, you're under siege. The defenses of Judah are stripped away. That's reality. That's America's reality. We saw something this past week that was so stunning. We saw the President of the United States kicked around like a rag doll by Mr. Putin of the Soviet Union. You just watched this week the most dramatic political event in our lifetime. And some of you were so unconscious, it went right by you. Do you understand what happened this week? The Soviet Union, the old Russia, has come and stepped into the Middle East and done exactly what Ezekiel 37 said they would do. What Psalm 83 said they would do. It is set now with a trigger to be pulled for the Gog-Magog war which is one of the final signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. You are going to see Jesus come in the clouds of heaven in your lifetime. Now, the question is, will you be alive? Because we're headed into some very tough times in America, and many of us will die during these coming months and years of starvation, of oppression, of a police state? I pray every one of you will continue to live and we together will see Jesus come. I'm saying Jesus is right at the door. Now. Russia has positioned itself The scriptures say that hooks would be placed in its jaw and it would be pulled out 
Gog Magog is southern Russia. They are Islamic states. And all of the nations surrounding Israel are Islamic states. And they all have a commitment to destroy Israel. And we're told that when this happens, and they assemble together as one great army, 200 million men, as they come against Israel, God will step in and strike down their missiles. That God will save His people. In our lifetime, this week, we watch that dramatic fulfillment of prophecy. And our president sat back and let it happen. You understand that America has funded what is called ISIS. We have funded and we have supplied both money and weaponry to ISIS. This is not me talking. This is mainstream news is talking about this. And we have done it because we want to replace Assad in Syria. Russia is saying, we have a warm water port in Syria. We are not going to let the Alawaki family be destroyed. We are going to step in and protect them from you, America. And so now the moderate, who used to be the radicals that America used to fight, and now we call them moderates so we can give them weaponry to fight against Assad. Now Russia's come in and they're taking out ISIS. Do you understand the war against Christians that ISIS has perpetuated in the beheading and rape and destruction of Christian churches? Families, do you understand America is responsible for those deaths? We are responsible. We're Americans. What have we done to cry out in prayer to stop this wickedness? No, we went to work. We got our our coffee. We earned our money. We lived a good American life. No, in God's eyes, we're responsible We are Americans. Over, well over 50 million babies have been murdered in and out of their mother's womb. The blood of these children are on the hands of Americans. Do you understand? We went to Iraq and over a million civilians died because we went there. Why'd we go? Did we have a national interest there? No. Why did we go to Afghanistan? Why did we bomb this hospital? The only hospital in the area. Doctors Without Borders, a wonderful organization. American doctors killed, murdered by America. Now, I love America. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm an American. I love this nation. My heart cries for this nation. But how can I not pray? How can I not bestir myself? He says, turn away from me. In other words, don't, don't play games with me. Turn away. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. America is being destroyed. Are you praying? Have you wept this week over America? Are you that unconscious? Verse 8. And you looked in that day to the weapons... In the palace of the forest, you saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defenses. You stored up water in the lower pool. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem, tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. 
but you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. So you took care of business for yourself, but you never cried out to God. You never wept before God. Verse 12, this is God's way. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair, to put on sackcloth. Verse 13 is man's way. This is moral insanity. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. That's fatalism. Look, I might as well have a good time while the good time's here. Why should I bestir myself? And last night, the Lord woke me up at 1.30. And said, pray, cry out to me. Well, it was cold in my room. I didn't want to spend time praying. I wanted to get back to sleep. I've got a responsibility today. By the way, this is not the sermon I had prepared for today. This is what the Lord spoke to me in the middle of the night last night. I finally got back to bed about 3.30. I'm sharing with you what he said to me. I had no idea I'd be dealing with the 22nd chapter. But the Lord did. This is the word of the Lord to us as a church. And the terrifying words found in verse 14. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the God Almighty. What sin will not be atoned for? The sin of not praying. The sin of not weeping over the condition of destruction over the people of God and over the nation. He's saying, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let my atonement cover your sin. You knew better. Pray. Fatalism keeps us from praying. Because we say, I don't know how. The Lord told me to pray an hour a day, many years ago. And so I took an alarm clock, because I knew this was going to be tough. And I said, okay, from 10 to 11 o'clock, I'll leave my office, I'll go to my bedroom, I'll set the alarm, one of those kitchen buzzers. I set it for an hour. And I got on my knees, and I prayed. And after about five minutes, I'd said everything I had to say. So I said it all again. That took ten minutes. And then I knew I was in trouble. Because I didn't know how to pray. And I said, Lord, you told me to pray for an hour. I've said everything I have to say to you. I'm out of words. Will you teach me how to pray? Will you teach me how to pray? Very quietly, he said to me, pray the Psalms. Relieved, I spent the rest of that hour reading aloud Psalms to the Lord. You know the Psalms are prayers. Most of them are prayers. So I read these prayers, and the more I read these prayers, the more I recognized the cry of my own heart in these prayers. And so I began crying out these psalms to God. And there were parts that didn't apply to me. And I said, Lord, why am I reading you this prayer when it doesn't apply to me? He said, read it again. And the Holy Spirit began to step in and teach me how to pray. And I was miserable. It's the hardest thing I ever did in my life. I was bored to tears. Not tears of conviction. I was bored to tears. And I knew I was in trouble because every day I had to go do this over and over and over and over. And pretty soon, I began to change. My preaching began to change. 
And people started leaving the church angry because of what I was saying in my sermons. They weren't just positive thinking sermons anymore. Some conviction of sin began to come in and they began to get mad. One multi-millionaire family, PhD from Harvard, a businessman. I stopped in the middle of the sermon and I said, please just sing with me Amazing Grace. So I had my music team come up and we began to sing Amazing Grace. And of course, it's praying about the worm like me. And oh, they came after me after the service and they said, Pastor, we are not worms. And of course I said, yes, you are. We all are. They were gone. I went to visit them. They said, no, pastor, we can't come to your church. We're not worms. Of course, I said, you're proving that you are by your attitude. And they had just donated $20,000 to the church. So I went to the treasurer and I said, please write out a check for $20,000. We're returning that money. So the next week I visited them again and I took back a check for $20,000. And I said, I can't keep this because obviously you don't believe in the same values that the National Prayer Chapel believes in. No, the Garden Cathedral was called then. For some reason that made them even more angry. They said, now you're telling us that our money is not good enough for you. I said, no, that's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, You need to humble your heart or we can't use your proud money. That was the last time I saw them. But they did cash the check. Please, I want you to hear me very clearly today. Fatalism, a disease that is affecting the people of God, that says when we go to the prayer closet, we can't make a difference. And so we're just going to go along to get along. I refuse. That one hour a day grew into four, five, six, seven, eight hours every day. And that's out of that prayer time the Lord finally said, close the church, it's yours, not mine. I'm not pleased by it. I want to tell you the continued ministry of the National Prayer Chapel is in part depending on your moving beyond fatalism and choosing to be actively involved in a life of prayer. Without it, there will be no national prayer chapel. If you who have listened to the teaching of the gospel are not centered in prayer, what are you doing here? One of you said to me this week, I'm here. I said, why are you here? I'm here because I know I have no power in my life. And I know the answer is prayer. And I'm here to learn how to pray. I praise God for that powerful statement of purpose. I'm here to learn how to pray with you. We've got to go deep. We're done with shallow living. We've got to get to Jesus or we're going to die. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The Lord will not atone for our lack of prayer. Without prayer, we're dead. Without prayer, we're dead. We as a church have to learn how to take the promises of God in the Scriptures. We've got to learn how to pray those promises. We've got to learn how to hang on to those promises until we see the physical realm change because we stood on the promises of God. The promises of God are like money in the bank. 
We've got to change our hearts and change our circumstances by claiming these promises of God for ourselves and for our nation. So turn your television off if it's still on. If it is, shame on you. should have been turned off a long time ago. Leave the internet alone. Get off Facebook. Take time to pray. When the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night, get up, get in the scripture. People say to me, should I pray or should I read the scripture? Read the scriptures because the scriptures will tell you what to pray. Some people just like to pray. And then when I press them on what they're saying, they're in la-la land. They're praying foolishness. You can't pray foolishness out of the Word of God. The conviction of the Holy Spirit fills you when you read this Word of God. I mean, when you begin to read and understand God is saying to you, till your dying day, the sin of prayerlessness will not be atoned for. That should terrify you. We have something worth fighting for. It's called eternity. It's called eternity. Eternity for our families. Eternities for our our neighbors. Eternity for our nation. Mighty God, will you teach? Will you teach us how to pray? And would you send the conviction of your Holy Spirit that we must pray? And would you open the word to us and direct us with each promise that you would have us stand upon? And would you cause us to know that we're going to die if we don't pray? And we're going to miss heaven if we're consumed with fatalism and lay back lazily and eat, drink, and be merry. Lord, we'll die. And our sin will not be atoned for. Lord, today there is yet time to pray. Call us to pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Come join us at nationalprayerchapel.com. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to Present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Cry!